Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Program, which organized tonight's event along with the tech staff at the Commonwealth Club to bring you another virtual online program. Um, And I'd like to welcome our audiences that are listening later as well. It's my great pleasure to meet and also introduce uh, Tamim Ansari, the uh, author of many books, but the last two, Destiny Disrupted and The Invention of Yesterday. Really a fascinating look at the big overarching ideas that run through history. So my first question for you, Tamim, is how did you get interested in such the the big ideas, going back and trying to see the patterns in in all of human history? It's really quite an undertaking. Well, you know... uh... (laughs) Part of this, I I come to it sort of happenstance because uh, I was a uh, textbook editor and then a textbook writer. And a lot of the work I did as a freelance textbook uh, writer, Mm -hmm. I did for uh, uh, high school world history programs. And, you know, um, uh, uh, I would uh, research deeply whatever I was my assignment was. But the assignments were somewhat random. It's what somebody needed a writer and they'd call me up and say, could you? You know, write a chapter about uh, ancient empires of Mesopotamia. And here's what we want you to cover. And here's like 16 books you should probably read. Uh, and then the next week, it would be someone saying, Industrial Revolution in Belgium. What was that all about? You know, <laughs> 30 pages. So the point about that is that uh, it made me, it sort of exposed me to a, a, a network, web work of things that seemingly were unrelated. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, but but being intensely at work uh, on this just to make a living and put a roof over my head, right. it was um, uh, it it sort of um, uh, you know it came to my attention that there there are there are interesting and perhaps little noticed connections between things that are happening in different parts of the world. So that's one of the things that brought me to um, uh, to the kinds of things I write about. Uh, but I think the other part of it actually goes all the way back to when I was a kid. You know, it's like, uh, uh, as I mentioned in Destiny Disrupted, when I was eight or nine or 10 years old, something like that, I met uh, Arnold Toynbee. He came to my little town in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he gave me this book, The Story of Mankind. And I was like, whoa, the story of mankind, that, you know, so I'm part of mankind. So what? We have a story? <laughs> We have a lot of stories, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, so that's that was one of the things that that it, it little spark little lit a little spark in in me mm-hmm. all the way back then. And I was interested in reading history from then on. I just I just read a lot of it. Uh, but I, I'd say there's a third thing that's that's uh, uh, fed into the kinds of things I write about, and that is the happenstance that. You know, I was born in Afghanistan. My mother was the first American woman to marry an Afghan and go live there. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the circumstances of my growing up were that I was living partly in one world and partly in another world. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, not only in a position to experience and realize, um, but unable to not be in that position Mm -hmm. of realizing uh, that there were two whole complete realities and that uh, to some extent people in each reality uh, thought theirs was reality and the other was a, um, you know, was a interesting subtopic of reality. Right, 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 right. You you call them peripheral people. I mean, out on the periphery. And I, I thought it was a great way of, of, of saying it because we all look at ourselves as the center of the universe and then we all look at our culture as the center of the universe and everything else is just kind of... Uh, Supporting caste, as you said, in another place. I thought another good way of putting it. Uh, But, you know, it isn't just uh, the peripheralness because, you know, that part of it is like that New Yorker cartoon that shows the the, uh, America and, you know, Broadway takes up fourth of the screen and and all the rest of the. So there is that that thing. Uh, But I think what got what what I was. experiencing and and knowing from an early age was that each of these worlds uh, was a coherent whole world in itself that included Mm. all of the rest of the worlds. You know, it's like they were there. 
but they didn't uh, they didn't register from this framework the way they did from within their own framework. Um, and since I was not in one framework or the other, or rather I was in both, uh, I was in a position to to be unhooked from the idea of there being an absolute truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find that when I look back at what I've written, uh, the, the thing that that interests me is what happens in those in those areas where civilizations overlap, so that there's both mm-hmm. uh, civilizations are operating at the same time, and that's happening, of course, more and more in the world now. So that is kind of the story of the world. Yeah, and I I was thinking the same thing while you were telling that story that that should make us all very optimistic for more knowledge and more understanding in the future because now, I mean, you were in the first wave of this kind of intermarriage, but now there's uh, lots of new scholars, all of whom have uh, mixed backgrounds, and uh, California is like that all by itself, as you said, where where the cultures merge. Um, so we should have thousands and thousands of scholars taking a bigger approach like that. Um, before we go into the, the, the four civilizations, river civilizations, which you start with, um, I thought it was very interesting what you said about money, um, that money started off uh, to take the place of credits and debits in the trading uh, civilizations because it was too clumsy to do credits and debits. And my question about that is, now that it's no longer clumsy to just do credits and debits because we have computers, is money going to disappear again? And we're going to go back to the credits and debits approach, but it's just going to be accounts in, in the computers. Well, you know, one of the things that that interests me is that in the course of history, I think there are periods of time, uh, maybe not globally, but periods of time in whole societies uh, in which money jumps to a new level of abstraction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, You know, of course, the least abstract level would be when there isn't money and you're a little community in and of separate from everything else and value is the thing you use. You eat barley, so barley has some value. Uh, even gold and silver is more abstract. Mm-hmm. You know, even that's usually we think of that as a, that's real money. But actually, if you were in the Sahara Desert and you were dying of thirst and you could choose between a glass of water and a pound of gold, mm-hmm. I think I know which one you choose, you know, yeah. which would have more value. Um, so even even gold and silver is a is a uh, is a level of abstraction, and then when you get to that time in history when um, you know the, the the complicated network of trade relationships generates banknotes. Mm-hmm. Now that's a you know that's a that's an interestingly more abstract thing. Somebody's supposed to look at this piece of paper and say, okay, this is worth uh, you know so and so, this amount, and I trust that it is, and. Uh, when I think about right now, um, yes, it's true, computers and we can do the accounting and stuff, but there are so many instruments of money-like value that are so abstract, and I don't get them, you know, at all. Yeah. <laughs> Credit swap derivatives and, you know, uh, I sort of understand future options. I'm a very primitive caveman <laughs> thing, so I can, that's about as far as I've gotten. Bitcoin, that, you know, it's like I don't understand that at all. I think the people in Las Vegas understand Bitcoin. (laughs) When I first began to hear about it, people would tell me, yeah, I I bought this much Bitcoin because I believe it's going up. And I was like, what's Bitcoin and and why is it going up? How is that? So, (laughs) you know, money is, is, is is, is an instrument of the interrelationship of people operating in the real world. Um, I thought it was, you know, in your book, your whole description of how the Knights Templar turned into banks, how then they didn't have to move the, the, the physical asset because they just corresponded back and forth, and then how that eventually turned into banknotes. That was, very, I think, a very good testament both to the clarity with which you write but also the enthusiasm with, with which you write when you find a pattern because you don't have to be an economist to like that description. That description very clear. So I, I, I thought that was great. That's why I wanted to bring money up first, besides everyone likes money. So um, let's go now. You, you, your, your book, uh, The Invention of Yesterday, says to last 50,000 years, but we'll skip the, the first 45,000 um, and, and let people read about that. And, and we'll go to, go to about 5,000 years ago. I find it interesting that about that time, history started. Not that recorded history started. There's always been history. But people began to 
be a little bit better off enough so that they began to pay attention to what had happened, what it had accomplished, you know, can we learn from it instead of just being in survival mode. Um, so in that time period, you say there basically were four river civilizations, and the character of the river influenced the character of those four civilizations. If you want to, want to tell a little bit about those, because I think that was a great, nice base for, for human civilization in the, in, the, in the current time. Well, you know, the, 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 the fundamental point there and the mystery is uh, river civilizations is generally acknowledged to be uh, one of the, uh, you know, one of the foundational generators of civilization and of culture. Mm-hmm. And it's because rivers bring reliable water. Uh, these, these four rivers deposit, you know, this alluvial soil that's fertile. And then people can um, uh, irrigate the lands if they can only put in the infrastructure to, to hoard the water and let it down through canals. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, every year they get more fertile soil so they can grow their crops. Uh, that's what we have known for a long time. The question that comes to me is these four rivers uh, that we're talking about, there's probably other ones that the, the cultures have not did not prosper and grow. But these four we're talking about is the uh, Huang He, which is or Huang He, which is um, uh, the river in China, and the Indus River, and uh, the Tigris Euphrates and the Niles. Well, those are the seeds of very different cultures. And how is it that the same geographical fact generates such different human uh, ideas about God and all this sort of stuff? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is one of those assignments I had right about the first empires. And uh-huh. I look at and what I'm realizing is, yeah, but the rivers are not are not uh, just the same. There is actually crucial geographical differences between those rivers. And interestingly enough, huh, you can see a relationship between the geographical features of that river mm-hmm. and the sort of culture that developed there. I, I would say let's just look at the Nile River and the Tigris-Euphrates. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the really significant things about the Nile River is that the last 600 miles of that of that river flowing uh, flowing north, uh, it doesn't have waterfalls, it doesn't have you know cataracts, doesn't have all that stuff. It's just this great big steady current flowing through an, a valley that's similar all along the way, and in which the uh, uh, the the current is reliably moving north, and the breeze over that current is reliably blowing south, mm-hmm. so that. It was easy for people to just put a boat in the river, and if they put the sail up, they uh, uh, they go one direction. If they take the sail down, they go in the other direction. And uh, you know, and what you discover is that there is a monolithic sort of culture that develops all along the 600 miles of that uh, of that river, roughly 400, 600, however many you would mm-hmm. you know what the exact number is. Uh, so you have this culture that is that is very similar and is is very interconnected and is all along this valley and is also uh influenced by the fact that it's uh you know it's 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 got desert on both sides and and big cataracts on one side so it's just like so safe but if you go to um uh the um, the tigris euphrates they're not surrounded by walls and and uh, uh defenses they can be got at from every side and the river is not one big uh, flowing um, interconnected or, you know, connected all up and down. It has connected parts and then uh, rapids and then weedy parts and then connected parts. And you find that along that river system, you have these separate little empires growing up. Mm-hmm. And each little empire builds walls around, you know, they, they, they emerge as little walled cities. Of course they do because that geography is always open to attack from the nomads on all sides. Mm-hmm. They, they create themselves the, um, the hills and cliffs that nature didn't give them. And then all of that has consequences historically. You know, then the story all unfolds from there. Yeah. Well, it's great you laid that uh, basis down. Um, and so the four are uh, the Egyptian uh, Empire and the Mesopotamian area, the Indus River uh, in India, and then uh, China, the Yellow River, or Hongyi. Yeah. So 
Then uh, later on, you, when you, you, you take, we're going to jump uh, around a little bit, but you talk about Rome, obviously, and Greece. And I, I just, I, I liked how you described Rome. You said that Rome, Rome was Greece minus the philosophers and plus the engineers in concrete. <laughs> That's a very nice description of the difference. But what was it? about this culture and, and where, which were they connected to? You often connect it to, uh, you know, different things between those cultures. And, and you, you talk a lot, well, we're going to talk a little bit later, too, about the narrative that a, that a culture creates and how it meshes or doesn't mesh. Uh, but, but Rome, is Rome part of the nomadic tribes, uh, your idea that there are these nomadic tribes up above the urban civilizations, or was it just a movement of the Mesopotamian culture over to Rome? Well, you know, exactly how uh, 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 Rome emerged as a civilization, I don't quite know. You know, they 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 think that the, the inhabitants both of Greece and Rome, uh, and there's there's going to be people who dispute this because mm-hmm. you're you're going on on uh, you know you're talking about a time when there's no written records of that. Right. Uh, but the the I would say the mainstream idea is that there was this migration out of the Central Asian, Central Eurasian steppes, mm-hmm. and it it went wherever the uh, east and west, as far as there was no uh, no barrier. Uh, when barriers turned up, then they they went south, mm-hmm. and so these uh, um, the whoever they were, you know, the the, the phrase Indo-European mm-hmm. is the one that's commonly attached to these these uh, these migrations, but whoever they were. They spread across a belt of northern terrain and then came south. So some came south into what is now Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Some came south into what is now Greece. Some came south into uh, into what is now uh, 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 Italy. Mm-hmm. And presumably that's where, uh, you know, the, the, the ethnic origins of, of, the, of Rome. Uh, their own stories say... That they were founded, they came from, uh, you know, the, the embattled city of Troy when it fell to the Greeks. Aeneas, mm-hmm. the hero of, of the Trojan Wars, uh, got out of the burning city and, and he came to Rome. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's, there's evidently some ancestral connection mm-hmm. uh, between those two cultures. Um, I think you, but, you know, uh, you haven't asked about this, but when you look at the, uh, the mythologies of... Uh, let's say the Iranians mm-hmm. uh, and of the Greeks and of the Romans, uh, there is something very similar about it. Uh, it's not just the language, you know, Deus is uh, God in one language and Zeus, Zeus mm-hmm. uh, is, is the name for God someplace else. Um, and, uh, it, but it's also this, for example, this, um, this narrative that the old gods, uh, you know, they, they had children and then they were, they were afraid of their children. So they tried to kill them. And then the children revolted and, and imprisoned the old gods and the present gods of these children. That's essentially the story that you have about the gods in Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and that's the story that you have about the gods in Greece. You know, the, the giants, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, uh, the Titans were the old gods. And then you have the Olympian gods. Then you go up north to the uh, Norse gods. Mm-hmm. They have the same essential story. You don't find that story, for example, uh, in China. And mm-hmm. you don't find it really in, you know, southern India. Mm-hmm. So it's like the King Lear story, actually. So not too Well, it's, it's something that obviously originated some, somehow, yeah. you know, there was, there was some ancestral connection there. Well, it's interesting because, you know, when we're, when we're, studying these uh, ways of looking at history when we have no written record. There's so many different ways to go at it. There's the archaeological studies. There's the uh, linguistic studies, as you said, that got really big in the 19th century and showed that Sanskrit and, and ancient Greek and Latin were all uh, linguistically related. Um, there's d- DNA studies. Um, so it's interesting to take all those different ways of looking at it and try to come up with a coherent narrative. But I think the, th- that narrative is sounds like what we believe must have happened because all those things seem to coalesce about around those that, that same sort of narrative. Uh, and, and we all know that whatever the story was that was told is obviously hiding something that really happened. 
Yeah, and and we can never really, you know, dead bang know what happened back there. It's yeah. it's still part of our spinning a narrative we're trying to live inside of. Yeah. All right. So um, let's go to the Chinese. Uh, the, the culture that came up about uh, the uh, around what we call the Yellow River in English, uh, and it was there were so many different times when it was uh, disorderly and a very large number of uh, different warlords, that kind of thing. Um, and we've seen that even in the in the 19th, uh, early 20th century, the same thing happened. Um, and then Mao Zedong came in. And I thought you had a great analogy because if you just tell tell the stories of the three main, and their time frame, the three main emperors that put things back together again, and then tell the story of Mao, and I think it will sound very familiar. Well, you know, the interesting thing about Mao is that in our... Um, um, uh, you know, experience of Mao, uh, because of the historical moment that we were in, we really completely connected him to Marx and uh, Lenin and the, the experience of communism rising, you know, uh, trying to solve the problems generated by industrialism. So we thought of, of Mao as being, you know, just a, uh, uh, Karl Marx, uh, point two or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but when you look at, the career of Mao, uh, you know, you find that it has interesting uh, echoes of the first emperor of China, Shi Huang Di, or, you know, there's different uh, names that they yeah. have for that guy, but around two centuries BC, uh, BCE, uh, he uh, was one of many little kingdoms. He erupted, he conquered all the other kingdoms, and he became, you know, the, the emperor of one big kingdom. And then he did this thing that was so characteristic of Chinese history. Mm. He he launched massive infrastructure programs. Mm-hmm. He built the Great Wall. You know, it's like he connected a whole bunch of little walls into this Great Wall. Mm-hmm. It it uh, was a you know Titanic engineering job, and also you know a lot of people gave their lives to to do that project. But it solved one of the the deep problems of Chinese history up to that time. It created a barrier against these these uh, uh, nomadic raiders from the north uh, whose raids into Chinese territory had been a constant of Chinese history. So he did that, uh, and uh, he did, you know, and he did a bunch of other things. He really organized a tightly controlled, centralized empire. And then he died, and because he had been so ruthless and, you know, so big in his schemes and so kind of, you know, brutal in carrying them out. Uh, On the one hand, he turned a whole bunch of warring, disparate little kingdoms into one governable empire. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you know, as soon as he died, uh, the eruption of of resentment uh, just swept out his supposed heir. So his dynasty was one and a half people long. Mm-hmm. But uh, the little bit of disorder, I'm sure they didn't think it was little at the time because yeah. <laughs> no, it's still poor. <laughs> but, but it was just a few years. And, and when the, the smoke cleared, there was another emperor, different dynasty. A peasant had risen up to that uh, highest height. And he started the the foundational dynasty of Chinese culture, which is the Han dynasty. And he was able to carry out the projects that he would need to carry out to build a coherent civilization uh, because Mao had done, uh, not Mao, excuse me. (laughs) The first emperor had done the dirty work, you know, He he had done those things that really couldn't be done without, I don't know if they could or couldn't, but you know, he, he he did he did things that required tough, brutal, authoritarian, uh, you know, effort, and then his, his the next dynasty uh, could profit from that uh, by being softer, gentler, kinder, mm-hmm. and still have you know a, a tax code that absolutely regulated what everything that went on in the empire and so on. Mm-hmm. So. That's something that happened around, uh, you know, a couple of centuries before uh, Common Era. And then, uh, you know, the Han Dynasty fell apart and there was another period of of uh, chaos. And when that, how that ended was another very Mao-like figure who emerged out of the smoking uh, chaos. And 
And he did the same thing as Mao. He undertook a huge infrastructure project, which was uh, building the Grand Canal, which connected no, uh, North China and South China and solved another huge problem of, of Chinese history and enabled, mm-hmm. you know, this prosperous, huge, booming uh, empire to then emerge. That guy also, the brutality of what he did ended up sweeping out his mm-hmm. his son and heir. He and his son were both don't, like... Don't be the son of a brutal emperor. I think. <laughs> yeah. So, so then came the Tang Dynasty, and they were like this long, uh, uh, you know, enduring, um, cultured civilization. This thing has happened, you know, a number of times in Chinese history. The, the, uh, the Ming Dynasty was another case. And uh, Mao came to China after a period in which China was in one of those times when it had fallen apart and fragmented. From the from the outside, we would say, well, you know, European imperialism came in and they were a weak and, and uh, you know, corrupt civilization and, and the much more developed and sophisticated Europeans took over. Um, and then, you know... Who told that narrative, right? ...activity <laughs> and they shook off the, the, the European masters. But if you look at it from the pattern of Chinese history, you know, the, the Chinese historians of, of 2,000 years ago already had the scheme in which they said there are periods of order and periods of disorder. And in the periods of disorder, the barbarians start to press in. But it's not because of the barbarians. It's because something has gone wrong in, internally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the success of the barbarians is a mark of something that has to be corrected internally. Um, so, you know, the 19th century was a period of, of warring states or, or chaos and disorder uh, for the for China. Uh, and uh, the, the early, you know, the first half of the 20th century was a civil war that was, was uh, the empire trying to reconstitute itself. When Mao emerged from that, you saw those same huge infrastructure projects thing that he did, mm-hmm. and he completely reorganized, uh, you know, Chinese uh, society. Although, you know, the way I see it, uh, there is this strain in Chinese culture that goes way back, which is the idea of the scholar bureaucrat. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like uh, the the administrators of the realm are people who are uniformly well educated in a doctrine uh, that puts them all on the same page uh, as uh, as they govern and administer the affairs of the empire. For those earlier emperors, it was Confucius and then Neo-Confucian, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say ideology, you know, it's like the system uh-huh. of thought. Um, and now it's, it's Maoism, you know, or under Mao, it became Maoism. Right. Everybody had that little red book they could quote from. Uh, but it was still the case that, the, the empire was governed by a, 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 a class of experts whose, um, whose uh, right to govern came from their mastery of the, uh, of the doctrine, of the, of the learning, uh, which now is, is Maoist communism. And then Mao died. There was a period of disorder, and they're trying to sort out who was going to be um, mm-hmm. uh, the next, you know, how, how the succession would go. But it seems to have settled into some kind of communist party. You know, it's like it's not Mao's communist party. Right. It's a peculiarly uh, corporate communist party. <laughs> um, but it seems to have, you know, it's, it's possible. Uh, who can predict? But it's possible that China is in for another period of of uh, stability, grandeur and power. Right. Uh, and and again, you know, it's like its whole history. Ch- China has not really been uh, um a, a country or an empire that has uh, it, that has gone out and conquered, you know, in the way that say Genghis Khan did or, or mm-hmm. Napoleon or something. It's expanding uh, uh, control and and power seems to be, you know, as a as a as a feature of that civilization uh, to be carried out with trade, economic. Um, uh, you know, uh, vigor and uh, and then cultural expansion. 
So I, I think that looks like <laughs> it looks to me like it's happening again. You again. know. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, I mean, obviously they've, they've, uh, come down and influenced Vietnam and Korea and Japan, but, but the history, you mentioned the thing about Japan, why, why it is that Japan has never really been completely taken over, even though in the seventh century or so, uh, the, the Japanese adopted, uh, Chinese versions of Buddhism and et cetera, so that they took on the culture. But has China ever really conquered Japan? No, China's never. <laughs> yeah, and Japan. It's Japan kind of been more the move, other way, actually. Japan made its move in the other uh, the other direction, which was uh, yeah. pretty bold, as you say. Uh, but it was during a time of of, of uh, chaos. Yeah, uh, that in, well, encouraged you know the that, barbarians. Uh, right. <laughs> the first emperor sent a, a fleet to Japan to conquer it, mm-hmm. and uh, a storm came up and destroyed the fleet. So that was the end. <laughs> that was the end of that one. <laughs> never do that again, right? <laughs> um, so another big chunk of history that you, you you talk about are the crusades um yeah. and and uh now we're, we're we've got these europeans uh they are living on land that used to be part of the roman empire and even north of that which had never been conquered um although england had but but that whole area um and it was it was um the backwater uh culturally and yeah. and uh, then we had all the plagues uh, which which caused even you know more problems for that area um, so that the Crusades, you, you, you talked about them in several different ways, which were interesting. One, that the, that the Europeans came and got to a, a taste of a better culture, actually, or, or a more, more uh, advanced culture. And, yeah. and the end result of that, which I found a fascinating idea you had, is that in, in right around 1500 or so, that you had this advanced Islamic culture, you had a, an, advan- in the, uh, an advanced uh, Indian culture, the Mughal Empire, which was another Muslim culture. Uh, you had the Persian advanced culture right in between them, the, the three uh, cultures. And then you had China also, all in pretty good shape at that time. The only ones that weren't in good shape were the Europeans. Um, and so they took a totally different narrative from the plague and the reaction to the plague. Not that we want to talk about a plague during the coronavirus uh, you know, thing, because this doesn't really qualify as a plague plague. Uh, but oh. at least we might have a little more feeling for, for, for what might have happened then. So yeah. I, I thought that was interesting because you, you said it, it created nostalgia for the past in the advanced civilizations, and it created an energy to go out and have an adventure and, and conquer new things in the, in the backward one. Well, you know, uh, um, the... Uh, the advanced civilizations east of the Mediterranean. And, and I use that as a shorthand because, you know, the Islamic culture wasn't all east of the Mediterranean. It was also all along North Africa and into Spain. But, uh, you know, for whatever your shorthand is, all of those cultures, uh, they were doing uh, just great. And then this this business of the trickling down effect of the of the steppe nomads mm-hmm. began to hit all of them. Um, and you know what? Earlier, when I was looking at these, uh, at the history of this time period and this and this geographical area, I was seeing it as I think most historians do, as a bunch of different stories. You know, there was the the um, the Ghaznavids came down and sacked India, and that was a story. And then there was all this kind of turmoil on the Chinese border, and there were these crusades that started up, and. When I was looking at the map, I realized, wait, these are not a bunch of different stories. Yeah, this is a story that's happening in one geographical zone, which is the entire belt of frontier between the steppe nomads of the north and the urban civilizations of the south. Uh, and something happened up there. You know, it's like something happened that 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 started a fervor and a kind of a boiling, you know, energy out of the areas that we're now calling, uh, you know, Kazakhstan and, and uh, uh, southern, southeastern Russia and, mm-hmm. and just that whole area. Um, and so then when you look at that closely, you discover, oh, wait a minute. Uh, there was a, a precipitating episode. Mm-hmm. The precipitating episode was the birth of, of Russia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Russia was born and all of a sudden there was this big plug between the the steppe nomads on the eastern side and the European plains on the western side. With this plug in place, you weren't going to get any more of this nomads coming east and then trickling down into Italy and Greece. That wasn't going to happen now. Mm. They were bottled up. Um, so when when nomadic people are bottled up 
in one place, they push someplace else. And that looks to me like what happened. You know, it's like this bottling happened, then this pushing out. But the the uh, the eruption that mattered on that side wasn't really the Crusades. It was um, the Mongol, uh, you know, conquests, yeah. which came out of nowhere. It was one of those, well, I mean, probably came out of somewhere, but uh, <laughs> people, for people near that area, it was like, what happened? Who are these guys? This is one of the black swans of history. Yeah, These plagues in, in Europe, uh, the most important one, the Black Death, also happened because of that eruption of the Mongols. But, of course, nobody at the time connected it that way because, you know, the, the Europeans hardly even knew about the Mongols. Uh, they they were frightened for a moment because the Mongols came almost to the gates of, you know, and they were going to attack. And then they, for some reason, went away. Yeah. But so when the, the plague came, I don't think any European thought of it as having anything to do with something happening elsewhere. Um, but... There's many things you can say, but one of the things you can say is, is when a when something like the Black Death sweeps through a, a, a civilization, it kills all the people but leaves all the infrastructure intact. Mm-hmm. Whereas when the Mongols swept through all the places they sacked, they burned down the entire city of Baghdad and 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 its five hundred thousand volume library. Mm-hmm. They took all the library of the city of Balkh and threw it in the Oxus River. So. There were so many books that dammed up the river. So, you know, there, there was a destruction of the, of, of what energizes a civilization. In Europe, it's almost like they, they, um, they reduced the population, cleared out the old, uh, uh, social forms that were kind of holding the, you know, the static feudal European one big Catholic church kind of structure. They broke it open. And Europe could could expand now. Now it could just flex itself. You know, Europeans were now, um, whereas on the other side of the Mediterranean over there, what people were experiencing is, wait, what happened? Let's get back to what we were doing. You know, mm. we were just rudely interrupted. We're not looking <laughs> we're not looking for the new because we had something good going on. Right. I think in Europe they were saying let's. Let's go back to what serfdom. Everybody's a serf. No, I think not. I think not. I think <laughs> Let's not. Let's try no. something different. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about, and somebody's already uh, brought the question in, was you mentioned several African empires, uh, Nubian yeah. Empire, and a couple of Islamic empires. You said one of the guys was uh, leaders was the richest man in the world at his time, and and maybe you can tell a little bit about that because that part of history isn't told too often. Well, it isn't told too often, and you know, I I wish I knew more about the uh, uh, the the history of sub-Saharan Africa. That's what we don't, you know, we don't hear about very much nowadays, and yeah. and I don't know if uh, you know if the research is there. But the parts that I'm talking about are the uh, are the uh, cultures that were um, flourishing just south of the Sahara Desert, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, Apparently, there was a great source of gold down there someplace, mm-hmm. um, and it was in the it was further south than these where these people were living. It was in the equatorial uh, uh, rainforest, I guess, or some someplace down there. Mm-hmm. Wherever it was, the uh, the uh, uh, Muslim uh, people along the North African coast they could get across the desert on their camels. They were able to do that mm-hmm. on their camels. They couldn't go further into Africa and, and you know, find, get to where the gold was. So this gave an opportunity for the uh, for the African people south of the Saharas to build trading empires there. And, the, you know, there was many things that were traded, but the core of that trade was the gold-salt trade. The people of the north had salt and the people of the south had gold. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, so they had a, a, a trading relationship that – featured this peculiar thing of, you know, the people from the north would come and put all their stuff someplace and, and retire. And then if the uh, if the people from the south thought it was enough, they'd leave the gold and take the take the goods. If it wasn't enough, they'd leave and the people had to come and put more goods. They didn't actually talk to each other <laughs> at first. <laughs> but, but because of this trade, what what happened is that there was cultures just south of the Sahara 
that emerged and, and became very powerful in their area. And there was a series of empires down there. Uh, you know, the first one was Ghana, uh, which incidentally was not where the modern uh, country of Ghana is. It was further north and, and inland. And, um, and it was, you know, a big flourishing, you know, powerful empire. It gave way to uh, the Songhe, uh, which was even bigger and more powerful. I think that's when uh, people began converting to Islam in that empire. Uh, and then uh, uh, an even bigger, um, you know, then they were conquered by the Mali, and that, that was an even bigger empire. And that was really a, a Muslim, uh, you know, a Muslim mm-hmm. uh, culture there now. And uh, Mansa Musa was the emperor of, of the uh, Mali Empire. He went to Hajj. He went on the pilgrimage to Mecca. Mm-hmm. And that's when he took along so much gold that, the, the you know, the, the market for gold actually crashed where he was traveling <laughs> <where he> <laughs> when he went through Egypt. So, yeah, before Jeff Bezos, I think he was the, the richest man who had ever lived. In- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Jeff could crash our economy, too, by just shutting down. yeah especially right now um one of the things that you you talk about in destiny disrupted which i found very interesting was the background of the wahhabi faith and the Saud family and how deep that goes a couple hundred years it's not it's not brand new it's not what a lot of people think you know began at the beginning of the 20th century or something like that that this combination between a, a family that wanted to rule and a family that wanted the, the, this religious uh, approach, um, and that the families intermarried. That that whole story is very fascinating because, of course, it brings us right right to Bin Laden and, and what's going on or what happened at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st. So, well, you know, the, the Ibn Wahhab was the uh, was the Muslim uh, reformer. Right. Uh, the reformer. You know, I'm referring to a, a period when. Uh, I think, you know, the uh, the precipitating factor was the success of European imperialism in the Muslim world. Mm-hmm. And Ibn Wahhab was one guy who uh, grew up in the, the desert. He was a Bedouin, you know, cult- culturally. He came from Bedouin stock. Then he went uh, out to, I guess, Egypt, I think it was, or, you know, Cairo. The cities, the the wealthy cities of of the Muslim world. And he looked around and it's like his feeling was, ah, it's all corruption out here. Mm-hmm. We had something better in in, uh, in the desert where we weren't, we were more egalitarian, we were all these things. So he went back and he, uh, 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 you know, uh, launched this reformist version of Islam that was very, very exacting in terms of its... Um, it's a, a narrative that the weakness of the Muslim world uh, stemmed from the abandonment of original Islam. So then the core of his philosophy was Muslims have to live exactly like the, uh, the prophet did and his companions in the original Muslim community in Medina. Um, so that's a very, you know, that's a very... Um, in order to regain power for the Muslims. Basically. Yeah, in order to regain power, because they've lost the, the favor of God right. by by abandoning uh, the original Muslim way, uh, and then there was various you know tribal chieftains who were who were looking for uh, uh, you know to, to gain power, but uh, the Saudi family uh, you know that was when they formed that alliance mm-hmm. uh, with with Ibn Wahhab and the Wahhabis then that was a powerful uh, combination. They were able to to prosper and conquer other and bring other tribes into their, uh, uh, under their power. That original combination didn't found, uh, you know, a, a powerful, uh, the, the powerful state that emerged later because they were within the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. And when they tried to go up against the Ottoman forces, they just, they were too small and, and right. pitiful. But then later in the 20th century, and, you know, that alliance had endured, and now the Ottomans were weak and, you know, that whole empire is falling apart. So then uh, uh, the the enduring combination of the, the Wahhabi clerical establishment and the Saudi tribal aristocracy 
who had intermarried and were, you know, pretty connected. That turned out to be, for the circumstances and in the context, a powerful and successful uh, uh, combination. And, you know, their their ascent was not unrelated to uh, the the world war that was happening right. and the British involvement. The British were, you know, Lawrence of Arabia was was involved in uh, promoting that uh, that um, uh, dynasty. It's, it's interesting to me that it's only recently that the uh, uh, the the uh, the head, uh, you know, whether they're uh, uh, the king or whether they're uh, the prime minister, it's only recently that another generation has come to power in, in mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia. Until very recently, they were still the children of the original founder of you know the pre World War One <laughs> period. Yeah. Because, very, because that guy had many kids. He did, he did, and and, and so did everyone since then. So um, one of the uh, that, that reminds me, you're talking about this family, and and I think it's really valuable for for us with either our foreign policy or dealing with this to understand how deep those roots go, and 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 the connection. And when we say, well, you should just get rid of those guys, it really doesn't work that easily. Um, no. To the Sauds, you can't just say you you you, you have to stop uh, being this strict faith. You have to be something that we can deal with. It's just a non-starter yeah. in the negotiation. Um, but uh, we'll go to another period of time, uh, 1850. In 1850, you had this great map, and it seemed to show that nine different families, basically, ran at least half of the world. I, I think I counted it right. There was like nine families, and they really, I mean, it was at the time of the British Empire, so that took a big chunk. But there were really only nine other families that were running almost everything at the time. And, and yeah. so you, you showed how, in, in a way, the disintegration to 195 nation states, there were a lot of complicated things. But that's a little bit like the disintegration in China between, between <laughs> you know, the, the, the time of order to the time of disorder. Um, so it's not too surprising that we had all these world wars. With it. I mean, but that was, they were all part of the process. But um, I thought that was a really nice vision. 1850, this is the map. 60 years later. That all gets dissolved. Almost all of them were gone. I mean, the yeah. British monarchy lasts, but it's not really a monarchy. It doesn't run the world anymore. Well, you know, uh, in that earlier map, when it was nine families, and I'll just toss out, you know, it's like yeah. the Ottoman family ruled a whole bunch of stuff. The Romanov family r- ruled all of Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Austro-Hungarian uh, dynasty uh, over there and the German Hohenzoller. So those were empires that were dynastic. And uh, there were only a few of them, but they were very loose and disorganized within them. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the emperor uh, or the king or whoever was the head guy in an em- in a in a uh, a family ruled empire like that. He didn't have that much to do with lots of technically his citizens or his subjects uh, all over his empire. Everybody was ruled by their family ruler who was ruled by another family ruler and on up. These 195 uh, nations or however many it is, I'm, I'm not going to say enough. that's how many, <laughs> something like that. These nations, the difference between a nation and those empires, nations are very, they're like hard nuggets. And, those, and you know, when you went from one of those empires to another, eh, it was it was checkpoints and stuff, but it wasn't that clear when you'd left one empire and entered another one. But it's not like that with nation states. You walk across a, a, a sidewalk and you're in the other country. And um, uh, I would say that, you know, all of my lifetime, I thought we had we had gotten to the final form. Nation states is what the world was about. Right now, I think it's looking like that. That wasn't final. Something different is coming in. Yeah, yeah. You you have a really great uh, analysis of that. Um, you 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 show how there's several different forces. Uh, coming in. Um, one was uh, that uh, during the 20th century, there was this common, uh, communist versus capitalist, uh, you know, combination. Something yeah. that's ironic because well before um, Russia was communist or anybody was communist, uh, Henry Adams wrote a book where he explained that the next century would be a, 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 a competition between America and Russia. Russia really? being, huh. Russia being this, this sort of... Um, slow-moving uh, thing that just keeps spreading everywhere and America being this kind of very energetic uh, and are we going to take over everything? Yeah. So the prediction was right. The, the forms that it took were, were, were different. 
Um, but but then you said that this uh, has gotten an, a new element, which is the Islamic Revolution going on. Um, yeah. Uh, let me let me go back to one other thing from a little bit earlier that I thought was fascinating, um, and I and, and is a very contemporary question to ask. You talk about India. Uh, India has is right on the line between the the Hindu culture, which you said has this particularly unusual narrative, uh, which is that everything is an illusion. Um, and and uh, that this is the way that it's a fundamental idea in life, and yet there's all these strict rules about caste and everything. And then the Muslim conquering of them, the Mughal Empire was totally, uh, you know, India was run by uh, Islamic uh, civilization. But now we have a, a situation where there's, I don't know, 300 million or so uh, Muslims and 800 million uh, Hindus in this one country, We've already had the big problem after the British left where, where the Muslims went off to Pakistan and, and uh, what's now Bangladesh, which was East Pakistan. And you've, you've, you've got a situation where you, you used a word, which you coined, I believe, uh, blessing, uh, both blending and meshing together, blessing. And you, you sort of don't seem to have any confidence that the Muslim narrative and the Hindu narrative can blesh in a way that, that can run a society. And so... What's going on in India with Modi and the push for more Hinduism and so on and so forth, or at least that that uh, some of their rights uh, might be lowered. That's all part of the narrative you're talking about, this sort of competition in this space where it comes up against these two huge narratives. And and so I, I want to know what, you're, what you feel about how confident you are that something can be worked out better or, or, or you think nothing can be really figured out between the two. Well, you know, uh, the the the... The process that for which I have coined the term blessing mm-hmm. uh, doesn't go with the term working something out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Working, working something out is what, um, uh, of, you know, is what organized entities do. What one government works something out with another government. Uh, blessing is, is in a place where two civilizations, cultures, narratives overlap. Individual people will find themselves uh, swimming through a lot of ideas that don't necessarily quite fit together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they will try to think, well, how does this fit to th- with that? And they'll try to build a life that, that, you know, that, that will make sense to them. And they might end up borrowing a little from here and a little from there. And in the course of time, what will emerge is something that isn't either of the, of the previous uh, separate narratives It'll be some new narrative that has bits of the old, bits of the new, uh, you know, bits of each old one and has dropped a few. Uh, you have I a think- great example of that in Buddhism, um, that, that early Buddhism, that it was this one kind of austere idea. And then it came in with the bodhisattva ideas, which came from another area and that that created a new thing. But anyway, that, that was one of your yes, examples. Well, Chan of Buddhism in China was, was like this new thing that came in and it had some Taoism in it, it had some Buddhism. Yeah. Um, in, in India, the um, the possibilities of of that happening are reduced by the uh, uh, you know by the a by the fact that there is something so contradictory about those two narratives you mm-hmm. know it's like very uh, central to Islamic uh, the spirit of Islam is get rid of all the false gods mm-hmm. you know there's only one god it's, it's that that's that's like I would say the most uh, um, core element of of Islam, and the you know the ultimate ideas of Hinduism are also unitarian. I would say you know mm. because everything converges to a, a final unity that's you know that's characterized by the term Atman. Uh, I mean uh, Brahman, mm. but um, uh, but the spirit of everyday uh, Hindu. Uh, uh, practice of religion is perfectly fine with everybody having different gods, mm-hmm. you know, so that's going to be hard to reconcile. And, um, but then also, you know, the, 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 the Islamic presence in India has totally been one of conquest mm-hmm. that had a lot of sacking of temples, <laughs> you yeah. know, it was part of the, uh, part of the central thing and when and when the experience historically is one group is coming in and focusing on sacking 
the religious most sacred things of the other group, it's going to be a hard time before that, you know, that's going to be hard to reconcile. I think, you know, that in in the course of modern times in in Indian history, the uh, the secular idea of Nehru uh, and of Gandhi mm-hmm. was the possible hope for building something that was able to accommodate both Islam and and, and Hinduism. Uh, it didn't it didn't succeed. You know, it's like the separation of Pakistan and India was one of the most mm-hmm. uh, horrifically dramatic moments in 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 the history of that kind of separation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many people gave their lives over just a few weeks, and and mm-hmm. that uh, as the two populations tried to scramble to the other side of those lines. Uh, and now, I think uh, you know uh, what. Um, uh, the uh, uh, the fundamentalist uh, Hindu party in India is not uncharacteristic of fundamentalist uh, authoritarian movements all over the world, and I think it's it's a reaction to, um, in part, you know, it's like there's a lot of things going on, but I think one of it is that uh, this the the march of technology and the expansion of all cultures, trading relationships, relationships and everything has created a space known as the human culture of the planet mm-hmm. in which there are many narratives uh, operating and all of us are apt to be brushing against and, you know, be in some contact with other narratives. And to the extent that uh, it is the case that, that from within one narrative, it's very hard to understand the other narrative from its own context. You know, you mm. can understand bits of it, but you take it into your narrative and make it part of your narrative. And then you don't really have those bits of that narrative. You have, you know, you're, you're sort of, and so, um, and, and so as these cultures try to, to merge, uh, the incoherence has a, uh, um, you know, has a propensity to drive people towards purifying their beliefs and getting with others of their own kind and right. getting rid of the other. So I, I think we see a movement that way all over the world. Uh, maybe it's it's not, you know, I hope, and I actually I have some positive belief that that's a phase we're going through. We're going to come to some world culture yeah. uh, on the other side of all this. And that's, uh, we, we have uh, uh, time to focus on that for a little while. We're, we're Part of the idea here was that we had all these uh, these four basic river uh, civilizations, the nomads. We had other areas with other ideas, uh, all these different separate histories, all these different narratives that had really fundamentally different ideas that didn't uh, weren't able to merge or, or blush, as you say. Um, at the same time, we have we have had overriding other narratives that sort of bring things together a little bit more, and we do see. From as you said, there's always been interconnectedness, but the interconnectedness now is daily, and and and, and we obviously everyone around the world knows exactly what's going on with the coronavirus everywhere in the world on a daily basis. Yeah. So we have this interconnectedness. Do we have a common future? What is that basis of moving towards the common future? You mentioned the role corporations play, the role of things, but then you also had brought this idea, and it's a Silicon Valley idea, if if, if anything, um, and that is this singularity idea, um, which you which you uh, describe and then say, I'm not sure I, I buy that. But uh, there's this just idea that we can all upload ourselves to computers and go on forever, um, which which is a, a an interesting, as you said, I think, uh, an interesting new religion. <laughs> so um, I think talk a little bit about how we can move and what you see as the principles that could help us build a common future where you... you, you undoubtedly must accept certain differences in different narratives and say that narrative is fine. That's your, your culture's uh, consensus about how to live life. This is ours, but we all agree on the following things. And, and, and can we build something like you said about uh, attempting it? But uh, I think, as you said, uh, in India between uh, Nehru and Gandhi and trying to build a, a secular framework to contain everybody. And we, we have some experience in America, but I think a lot of people don't realize how short our experience is, how short, the experiences in other countries. Um, you made a nice distinction between Europe and America on the nationalism. America was about ideas and nationalism was about, about race. And 
that was another fascinating part. People should read about that because we don't have time to cover it. But how the, the idea of race got started and ra- racism, not that it got, everyone has always had the other. But to, the, to do it based on race was a relatively recent phenomenon. I thought that was a fascinating argument you made. But give us the idea of, of where you think, where your optimism comes from that we can build a common future. If you've got well, <laughs> you know, uh, as much as we uh, our experience is so constantly that ah oh, the the world is a mess, everything's falling apart. Uh, there's also every day, you know, some we're, we're doing one thing right now. Look, we had this pandemic, and now you and I are having this this conversation, and other people are listening to it. Yeah. This is part of our human experience now, and uh, I think on the on the spiritual side. Uh, of uh, building a common humanity, which is one of the, you know, you can't do without that. There has right. to be some sense of, of, of emotional attachment or uh, relationship to the, to the oneness of humanity. Right now, this, this pandemic going on, there have been pandemics many times in history. And in terms of the catastrophic nature of them, uh, oh, way more than now. You know, it's like when the Europeans came to America, in many places, nine out of 10 people died. Mm-hmm. So it's like unimaginable from where we are right now. But nobody in those times knew that there was happening to people anywhere else. Uh, there's never been a time in history that we have had an experience like this where we're aware that all of us as humanity are facing some single threat that's not another human group so yeah. that the answer to it is not get the guns out, Charlie, let's go, uh, you know, start shooting. It's something different. We we haven't quite figured out what, but, you know, right now we're doing the social distancing and sheltering in place. But right with that, we're also trying to find ways to connect, you know, it's like Zoom conferences and, mm-hmm. uh, call, you know, I was thinking of making a lemon meringue pie and taking it over to my neighbor's house, yeah. putting it on, on their porch and then coming back and giving them a call and saying, I left you a pie. Yeah. They did that for us with bread. Um, so I think, you know, I, I, I don't know, but I, I see some possible ray of bright side to what's happening right now. And the other part of the process, which is, slowly building or weaving a, a narrative that we're all inside of is not something anybody can do. It's mm-hmm. something that emerges from human culture as we interact. Um, I think what we have to uh, believe in, or not even believe, I think this is a, a truth that we have to open our eyes to, uh, is that uh, having a single human narrative that we're all inside of and, you know, through which we can connect with all other humans does not mean we have abandoned our differences. Yeah. You know, uh, I think I've elsewhere given the uh, the uh, uh, analogy that, uh, you know, if you think of the human species as some single organism, which you really need to because the interconnection through intercommunication, interaction of different human groups has an organic quality of setting intentions, pursuing goals, all of that. The fact that we as humans have many different cultures and many different ideas of how to, uh, you know, how to deal with our environment, essentially. Uh, that's a good thing about humans. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the human animal having many different strategies. <laughs> <laughs> and And we need to, because whatever we're dealing with out there, no matter how much we think we know, it's a big unknown. <clears throat> and things we can't even imagine or predict are constantly going to be coming at us from out there. The, the pandemic is one example. You know, it's like five months ago, nobody predicted this. No. And, and the, one of the nice things about it, too, I think that there's always uh, the idea that we have to hold on to our knowledge to be competitive with other places. And, and, and to really make sure nobody else learns. I mean, it, it, it wasn't too many centuries ago that men didn't want women to learn anything. Yeah. Uh, and and right. never be educated because what would happen if the women got smarter than we were? Well, now we know, uh, because now they're educated and they're, they're, you know, but, and, and it's an advantage. And the cultures yeah. that don't do this are losing half of their resources, basically. Yeah. But, but the other thing about the pandemic is that we, because the scientific medical knowledge has spread, there are probably, 
a hundred labs throughout the world in all different yeah, countries, all working on this vaccine and, and, and also tests. And, and somebody's going to come up with a better test. Someone's going to come up with a better vaccine where it's all going to be scientifically tested first, and then we'll have that advantage. And it, it won't be an American. It, it, could be, it could be from uh, South Africa. It could be from Egypt. It could be from labs in any place in the world. We don't know. Yeah. Everybody's got that medical education, and that's an advantage to everybody. And I think it's really, you know, at least should give us that idea. Um, no, I, I want to, even though it's a total aside, oops, got it. Um, I, I want to, someone sent in a question, uh, two questions. And, and so even it's an abstraction. I mean, it's away from what we're talking about. I wanted to ask him for that person. Didn't the Achaemenid dynasty initiate trade and ideas between Greece and India long before Alexander? And how is Cyrus pronounced correctly in Persian? Just in case you know that. Those are two questions. Cyrus in Persian? Uh-huh. I think Cyrus is, is pronounced Horush. Horush, something like that. Yeah, I, I think that's how it would have been pronounced back then. We're pretty close um, with Cyrus. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, Alexander is, is late in the game for yeah. uh, Shemanid dynasty. Um, there was, uh, you know, before uh, Alexander, the Greeks were well, well aware of the Persians, and many Greeks went over there and, and had jobs and worked there and then came mm-hmm. back. And the Persians were also aware of the Greeks for a long time. Uh, the, the Persians thought of the Greeks as frontier outliers, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's probably why that pr- trouble started is because they kept trying to, to tell those frontiers people, you have to do this, you have to do that, you know, <laughs> obey the emperor. Uh, and they didn't probably quite appreciate that the Greeks had emerged as a power in their own right. Uh, so yeah, uh, you know, the, um, the um uh the the trade thing has always been uh operating right along with the opposite of it which is uh building the frontier and attacking the other right right <laughs> you know and uh, they <clears throat> said that in the uh, in the Ashemanid empire there were caravans of 100 camels and 200 camels constantly uh crisscrossing the realm uh going from going to the uh the much you know the the rich places that were on all sides of the uh, of the persian empire and when you look at that middle world which you know the heart of it is is persia uh when you look at that middle world it's surrounded by navigable uh bodies of water so every place where you have a navigable body of water you're going to have a port, and that's going to connect out to other uh, places that are the ports for some hinterland. Mm-hmm. Um, Persia was a was a trading uh, society. That's that's what you know. That was the heart of the culture. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things about that that's good for for the future is, uh, as you kind of show, one of the uh, trajectories of human life is more trade and less war. Even though the trade is often aggressive and like war. And the war is often uh, not as aggressive sometimes and, and more like trade. But, but that we are interconnected. We're going to keep doing it, and it'll just keep speeding up, and, and we're going to deal with it one way or the other. We ought to do it intelligently if we can. <laughs> um, anyway, that was great. Thank you very much, Shamim, for, for joining us this way. It was really a great conversation, wonderful book, and um, we'll see you live in September if everything works out. Yeah, I hope it does, and thank you for inviting me here. My pleasure. So ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.